This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. <laughs> they can't see your shrug on the micro. We haven't upgraded our microphones in a while, so it can't. It's not picking up the shrug. Oh, okay. It was. Can you turn up your gain a little bit? So let maybe me try we it again. Hear let me just shrug. try it again. I'm going to try and sh- like put my hands up in the air real, real fast. See if you can hear the air move. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I heard it that time. Okay, for sure. maybe you heard my chair squeak. This is a podcast <laughs> about books. I I raised my arms in the air in a like I don't know what to talk about. I read a book and I'm going to talk about it. Like I don't have. I'm not coming in with a. I just came back and boy, are my arms tired? Energy. Yeah, like your arms are in the air, but I do, do care. You do care, and that's the. <laughs> That's the energy that we bring to the podcast each and every week. That's true. One of us reads a book and the other person helps them talk about it. That's usually how it goes. Uh, and this week is no different. <laughs> Craig, what did you read this week? I read Confessions of a Mask by Yukio uh, Mishima. Cool. It was a Patreon recommendation. Thank you, Garrett. Uh, Garrett said, I loved your Haruki Murakami review. but I don't know if that was a review, but we recovered... We've covered Murakami anyway. Uh, yeah. Notice there's not much else in terms of Japanese authors. Also became popular in the U.S. I'd say one of the most fascinating writers and people in that realm would be Yukio Mishima. And out of the works of his I'd read, I'd say my favorite so far has been his debut. I don't know if this was technically... just Not to fact check Garrett here in real time. Sorry, Garrett. Uh, it's Thank definitely you for your one of support. his very early novels. My research... Uh, pulled up another one, Thieves, that was published in 1948. But I'm not like super well versed in the like the translation history ah, or sure. what has and hasn't been like translated and officially released. It's it's definitely one of his earlier works. Great. Okay. Um, and uh, published in 1949. And his most like commented upon and, and renowned work mm. is this te- tetralogy or mm. uh, quadrilogy, if you will, of novels. <laughs> <laughs> titled the sea of fertility uh one of which was published like posthumously so that's sort of his his magnum opus okay in terms of like how he thought about it and how critics think about it but Great. uh confession yeah confessions of a mask one of his notable works one of his earlier works not sure it's the first of his works excellent garrett but also yeah, like, said i'd love to ahead. hear your thoughts on the book and the enigma that Mish- mishima has become that's so what did he say fascinating Garrett did about the uh one of the most fascinating writers fascinating. yeah yeah i think that like the use of the words fascinating and enigma which imply like interesting without making a value judgment is a those are interesting words yeah. applied to this guy uh-huh <laughs> cuz he definitely is those things like there are, there are layers to him but we'll we'll uh, we'll get to that now i guess i guess yeah i will just note that uh I read the translation is by Meredith Weatherby. Uh, it's the only translation I think that's out there. 
and the Japanese title is Kamen no Kakuhaku, uh, but Confessions of a Mask is what we're talking about today. What should we... This book is autobiographical in a way, but we should talk about what we know about the dude first. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Uh, so Yukio Mishima was born uh, Kimitaki Hiraoka in 1925, uh, died in 1970. We're going to talk about the cause of death. Yeah, we will. Um, this, the, so his pen name was chosen for him at the age of 16. Uh, so he was a Japanese author, poet, and playwright. Um, and one of the big like high-level bullet points to know about him is that he was sort of a lifelong right-wing nationalist. That definitely that side of him grew in Mm. like it became more apparent in his works and in his actions as his life went on. Uh, But he was skeptical of, of Western influence in the country's like post-World War II government. Yeah. Um, Made what I think would be a familiar argument for people who track like the American right wing or, or or many like right wing and and proto fascist (laughs) governments uh, worried that Japan would lose its culture and values Mm, mm. Uh, under the democracy established in the 1947 constitution after after the emperor of japan surrendered in world war ii um so yeah uh let's talk about his childhood his parents were fairly well connected his father was a government official in the agriculture and commerce office mother was the daughter of a kaisei academy principal and his grandfather was a governor general of the karafuto prefecture okay uh, so Guy was connected. His grandmother also was raised in the house of a prince. Whoa. Which my, according to my research, led her to kind of put on airs for the entire rest of her life. Thanks, <laughs> grandma. <'cause, laughs> uh, but he, so he spent much of his early childhood with his grandmother. She was uh, prone to violent outbursts. She kept him from going like outside in the sunlight and uh, with social, kept him from socializing with other boys his age. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, uh, began writing his first stories around the age of 12 after he developed an interest in mythology and, and in Japanese and Western authors. Um, so when he, so he's with his grandma till he's 12, when he's 12, he goes back to his parents' house and yeah, grandma yelled at him, wouldn't let him play with the, the boys. You think maybe his parents would be a little better. No, his father was kind of a disciplinarian. Mm. Uh, he apparently wants to build character, I guess, like held him up to the like to a, the side of a moving train as it passed just to like put the fear of, Whoa, the fear in him of trains in him. Yeah. No, thanks. Um, and more relevantly to his writing career. Uh, thought that writing was effeminate and tore up his manuscripts when he found them. But um, ah, yes, okay. His mother supported him and helped him keep his writing secret as best she could to help you know read his early works to give him feedback on them. You know, he he did have some parental support, but it wasn't coming from his dad. Sure. Um, at the age of sixteen, he was asked to write a short story, uh, which impressed his teacher, who had asked for it so much that he his teacher took the manuscript to a the board of a literary magazine that he was on. And uh, this story was published in that magazine and then uh, published later as a book. You know, it was a small run. It was like 4,400 books, I think, due to wartime paper shortages. Okay. Um, But this was when he got that pen name. Uh, So Mishima comes from the train station that his teacher used 
like on his way to the editorial board meeting. Okay. And Yukio is a reference to, I guess the word Yuki is, means snow. And that was a reference to the snow that they saw on Mount Fuji when they passed by it on the train. Okay. So it's, like there've been worse ways to come by your pen name. I think. Well, and it sounds, I don't know. It sounds like he's attached to trains. <laughs> um, I don't know. Trains are cool. I don't, that's fine. Um, take the trains are not train. like the train didn't hold in the, like, the train didn't do this the train is blameless no. <laughs> in all this yeah that's true the train is just <laughs> a train it's fine uh he was drafted for world war ii toward the end of the war but he like so when he had his exam he was he had a cold which was misdiagnosis tuberculosis uh he was classified as a second class conscript and then sent home because of this misdiagnosed tb and he was not thrilled about this. Like he, you know, even even this early, he was really enamored of like the emperor and of Japan. You know, he, he his he was a big supporter of the emperor and of of Japan, and and he wrote ad, admiringly about special attack units like uh, kamikaze mm. pilots. Okay. Um, and after the Japanese surrendered in 1945, he vowed to protect. Japanese cultural traditions. Um, and then some people, so later in life, he developed an interest in like weightlifting and, and physical fitness. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and there has been speculation that some of this obsession was like a Teddy Rooseveltian response oh, sure. to being sort of a sickly kid. <laughs> that, I mean, there's a version of that in this book also. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, his right wing leanings began to be commented on in his writing in like the early to mid 1950s. He like he traveled a lot. He traveled to Greece and he wrote a book about about that. And uh, there was a lot of there's in his work. There's a lot of yearning for the past in a way that sure <laughs> that uh, like left wing commentators in particular flag. Yeah, that's a thing to to note about someone. Yeah. And uh, so the thing about him and his nationalism is that in the year 1970 he and members of a militia that he founded the shield society yes enter a military base takes the commander hostage gives a big speech demanding that japan's military forces overthrow the country's constitution Mm. (laughs) after delivering the speech the speech he commits ritual suicide commits seppuku okay and that's and that. that's yeah and that's that huh and he also like even though he did this he there were like three other guys with him and he went way out of his way to talk them out of following his example and also committing seppuku yeah um so yeah like that that's the the outline of him i think the the nationalism i am inclined to view as problematic because of my experience with it here in, you know, in Western society in, in 2020. But like we, we talked a little bit before we started recording that we, you know, we, we don't have as much context for what that means for in like Japanese culture, especially people who like lived through world war two. Yes. Um, yes. So we don't, you know, we don't want to like draw too many comparisons or make too many value judgments. Not, not because they're not there to be made, but just because we don't like, we, we don't know the full extent of like what we're talking about on this. Topic. Yeah. Is that, is that think, fair? I think it's fair to say that we are 
against fascism. We're against fascism. We're very skeptical of nationalism. Very skeptical of nationalism. Deeply skeptical of nationalism. And that's kind of where I think we'll leave it. I think so. Except insofar as it like comes up in this book. That seems fair. And I, I think the uh, one of the other reasons to talk about this book is that uh, this is a book about a, a you know a young Mishima or a character a character who is a, a stand-in for most of his life who is gay mm-hmm. and so there are parts of this book that I think have spoken to a lot of people who have gone through that experience of like well I don't know what my manhood is in this society that is not you know does not make space for me it does not make me feel like I am included or belong like I noticed I think he's in the like the like the rainbow honor walk in San Francisco like yeah so in, tw- in th- even this this aspect of his life all, life also is complicated in 2014 he was honored during this inaugural creation of this rainbow honor walk in San Francisco which honors LGBTQ people who have quote made significant contributions in their fields yeah. Um, but at the same time, like his wife vehemently denied his homosexuality after he died. Like that's yeah. I, our modern our modern understanding of like sexuality is it is nuanced. It is complex. It yes. makes room for a lot of people. Yes. As it should. And I guess I'd say that just because like Duke could be bi, like Duke could have a, a wife who, who was yeah. completely well, convinced the, of it. We're yeah, there's yeah. there's a we should talk about that in this book and in what is depicted in this book because I think there is a lot of yearning for self-knowledge in this book and self-actualization probably and definitely I would probably and definitely spoken to a lot of people who have read it uh, probably complicates how you feel about his support of a fascist Japan so yeah that's Tell me a story about a complicated man, to quote (laughs) a famous author named Homer Simpson. And and like, and now, and you know, we're getting, we're getting through the, the biographical part. And once we start talking about the book, we can talk more about the, the style of it. But like by all accounts, he was this super important figure, like stylistically and culturally, who, despite his skepticism of the West and Western values, was this really important figure in sort of melding yeah. a Japanese style and a more Western style because of his like literary influences. So yeah, yeah complicated. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, an enigma. enigma. Yes, if you will. <laughs> Let us take a break and we will attempt. We'll just, we might not solve the enigma, but we will ask some questions. Just ask some questions. Okay. Craig, I have a confession to make. Please. So you, you, I, I'm a line item on your bank statement, and you think that I'm a subscription that you you paid for and you use all the time and that you want to have on your bank statement. But then you look at the the person who's charging you, and it's like a mask has been removed from their face, and it's a subscription that actually you don't want. Oh no! And that you forgot to cancel. <laughs> Please get this has, mask has, delivery service off my bill. Has this ever happened to you? No, thanks. <laughs> if it has happened to you, uh, unmask these the 
<laughs> these deceptive subscriptions with our sponsors this week. Truebill. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about, or the ones that are hiding behind a mask on your bank statement. Mm. Uh, on average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Because the companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link up your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And for subscriptions that don't want to let you cancel online, your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to talk to anybody on the phone. Which that sounds is great. very important to me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash overdue. Go right now, truebill.com slash overdue. It could save you thousands of dollars a year. Stop getting masks that you don't want. What I got to get rid of these masks. <laughs> Over the course of this read, it's changed from a medical m- metaphorical mask to like a literal mask there, delivery service. There are so <laughs> many masks in my house. Listen, you signed up because I said they were going to send you 99 masks for a penny. But then you didn't know that they were going to start charging you full price after that. And that's where they get you. That's where they got me. Free me. Then Columbia House and their mask (laughs) selling program. (laughs) Andrew, now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I need help getting rid of these masks. (laughs) (laughs) I need help from doing better ad reads. Will they help me with that? Maybe. What exactly is like the genre of help that we're talking about? Well, life can be a lot, Andrew. And, you know, putting on a mask every day. Whether it's a literal one, a figurative one, it can be tough. You can burn yourself out trying to be someone that you're not or try to be the person that you actually are. You, <laughs> It's tough to be yourself sometimes. <laughs> I feel for people. It happens to me all the time. Yeah. Um, you might wind up burning yourself out. You might get irritable, fatigued, disoriented. There's lots of potential causes for this. And BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. And talking with someone can help figure out what's causing that stress or contributing to burnout. A lot of folks close to me have sought out therapy. They find it very uh, helpful and impactful. And those who've used BetterHelp have found it convenient and helpful and impactful. So help helpful to talk through the difficult stuff, the challenging stuff, whether it's new and different or routine and regular. Uh, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to theme of this week is you don't have to do stuff that you don't want to do (laughs) (laughs) better help is much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours our listeners get 10 percent off their first month at betterhelp.com slash overdue that's better h-e-l-p.com slash overdue Somebody stop me oh from God. asking you about this book, Confessions of of Confess. I read Confessions of the Mask. Is no, that- it is not a sequel to the Mask called Confessions of the Mask. Excuse I me. I just imagine like it's the the movie The Mask reimagined a sort of a mockumentary style project. <laughs> where okay, we, where the mask guy sits in front of a camera and talks about how. He feels like he just has to be on all the time. Oh my god! That's Would what watch expect from him. Yeah. A really tired Cameron Diaz give confessional interviews. Mm-hmm. I can, oh god, I had to deal with that guy again. Mm-hmm. 
He's always looking like a wolf and going auga. I can't stand <laughs> it. Uh, what do you want to ask me about this book, Andrew? Let's kick things off. What do you want to what, know? Was what, what about? Oh, jeez. What it, what did it, what did it about? You you always ask the hard questions. And um, that's me. I'm a you know, journalist by trade. I speak truth to power. <laughs> and because you read the book this week, the podcast is more dependent on you. And so you have more power than I do. So I'm speaking truth to you. What what is it about? What the book about? The book is about a young guy who was born in 1925 in Japan, and <laughs> he is basically Mishima. Um, you know the the text is not here screaming I'm an autobiography, but if if you didn't know anything about him, you wouldn't necessarily know this. But uh, even a cursory read of his background information you'll go oh yeah that's that part of the book that's that part of the book. i mean if he if he really if he wanted to cover his tracks he could have at least changed the birth year he could have been like i was born in 1923 <laughs> it's a totally different person no uh and it opens with him it's it's all like a uh, first person um kind of confessional style like it is and that is mean it is in the name of the book so wow i didn't intend that um it is you know a bit of a buildings romance a bit of a guy growing up a buildings romance i know i know what it is but you put your french stank on it I and don't it's kn- definitely not a how french would you word. say it it's latin how would you say building it? buildings roman i don't think you would buildings roman or roman or like i wouldn't i wouldn't go roma <laughs> I wouldn't take the end it's off. It's a the Roman end of it. building, uh, mm-hmm. this book. It is about a guy who grows up. Uh, it starts, you know, he's a kid in the 1920s in Japan. His family, I think, lives in like suburban Tokyo or something. Um, and at the beginning, he's telling you stuff like For many years, I claimed I could remember things seen at the time of my own birth. You're like, what is what are you talking about, dude? And he's like <laughs> talking about how he can remember being like bathed as a little baby. He can remember like when he was born. And he later tells you, the reader, that like uh his family thinks that whenever he told them this, it was just because they were trying to get him get he was trying to get them to explain how where babies come from, which mm, is okay. you know, one way to do that. Sure. Um he is a kind of sickly kid um i think at one point someone refers to him as kochan k-o-c-h-a-n um but for the bulk of the novel it's just like the narrator is is living this this life um and he's i he says at one point that he suffers from auto intoxication which i think means that like the body is poisoning itself like there's not a specific Mm -hmm. He contracts stuff like tuberculosis. He contracts stuff like tonsillitis. But he is a just getting sick all the time kind of mm-hmm. guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have a I have a toddler in daycare, so I understand. <laughs> sure, I understand, I understand being sick all the time. Yeah, and so when we get to the part of the book where it is him kind of living with his grandmother, his grandmother is keeping him. Uh, separated from other kids, mostly, particularly other boys. Um, kind of, it, it's a mix of like, oh, she, he was her like delicate little bird to protect, and you know whatever other version of her kind of controlling his life. But also, he's so frail; she needs to protect him. All sorts of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And in this opening section, I think the book is is like delineated in like four or five chapters. Um, and in this opening chapter, we get some like we get some information that he knows it's that he is like you know he's different. He talks about he sees this guy he refers to in the as the night soil man <laughs> as a he's a guy who's coming down the hill at the end of the day carrying what i guess are buckets of poop um okay. Got that he's dirt. like taking away from you know people's homes or something as a job i guess and he is like both remarking on this guy's tight pants now he the four-year-old is not. The narrator who is telling you about this time that when he was four, he saw this man. Mm-hmm. That's the version of the story you're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, okay, he had these pants, but also I was like attracted to the tragedy of this guy's life. Like, presume, you know, putting on this guy's life a lot that like presuming a lot about him that his life is this kind of sad. How could he have this job? You know, and that builds towards this character trait that the narrator tells you he has where he is attracted to loneliness, he's attracted to sadness, a tragic quality as he starts reading fairy tale stories as a kid. He really gets into stories where princes kill themselves at the end. Rad, radical, knowing what we know about the way that his life went. Yeah, he's really um, in, into a violent tragedy. It's just the the way that you started you you led with the the tight pants made me think that it was going to be a lot more about noticing a night soil man with a big fat booty. And mm. it's really are, it's about tight like pants. it's a, it's about the big fat booty but also like the big fat loneliness yeah you're right he thinks that the guy guy uh experiences you are yes it is both and and something throughout the book for this character is like what when he is desiring someone or something about them is it a sexual desire is it a spiritual for lack of a better word or emotional desire um when is he experiencing like a feeling of like just wanting to be that person rather than to like have sex with them or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um overall this book gets like there are, the the language is kind of flowery but like it's still pretty graphic like about stuff like masturbation in ways that reminded me of um, Philip Roth and Portnoy's Complaint. Okay. Um, it's pretty graphic about the depictions of, like, violence that he fantasizes about. And yet, he goes, like, 180 pages out of a 250-page book before someone kisses him for the first time. Okay. So there's, like, that tension in his experience. In not, a, not a good book for people who need an early kiss. No, there is not an early kiss in this book. It doesn't. There is uh, maybe a third of the way through he holds a boy's hand 
Okay. By kind of by accident while they were playing a game trying to shove each other off a balance beam. All right. Just um, there's such a wide. It goes from the love hypothesis where a <laughs> kiss is, is not, the first thing, all the way to books like this where the kiss happens almost all the way at the end. Yeah, and and it should be said that he really doesn't. He's not like excited about his like who he is. He's not like enthused about not being able to relate to the boys in his life that he, you know, thinks are straight based on their behavior and, and predilections and things like that. Yeah. Um, and he is not excited about the fact that he doesn't, isn't attracted to women at all. And then that's kind of, he, I don't, he doesn't really enter into any relationships with men throughout the book, even though he has a few crushes and, and things like that. Um, I, I mean, I can't imagine that, Anything about the society that he's living in would encourage him to feel great about that. So yeah, no. like of, of course he's not enthusiastic about like there there is no it's it's Pride Month, but there is no pride to his situation. No, there is there is there's no like structure for it. No, you know there what is I mean not. Like, there's no there's no scaffolding there to support him in his pride. No. So it is not there. No, and and the other thing happening is that his like he is somewhat sexually attracted to like pain and suffering. There's like sadism involved as well. Okay. So his he is not like sharing any of this information with anyone except the reader. Um so we get these like instances early in the book where he wants to be other people. He you know dreams of this magician this stage magician and he goes around his house dressing up as her and you know scaring his grandma and stuff uh there's a scene at the end of that chapter where there's a parade in his town and i thought this was nice the people putting on the parade know that the grandma can't really make it to the parade route because she's not as mobile as she used to be mm-hmm. so they bring the parade like by her house and it's like a bunch of firemen and sailors and stuff and of course our young protagonist is remarking upon them he is interested in them uh and then they come into the, like the garden in front of the house and just smash everything they just like trample all the flowers and smash everything up uh-oh and everyone is like, oh, no, what are these people doing trampling all our stuff? And our protagonist is like, kind of cool. They're messing everything up. <laughs> He's like into the destruction of it. Sure. And that like desire for and penchant for destruction is at times a, a uh at certain points throughout the book, he wonders if he's going to make it past his 20s. Maybe it's something to do with the war that happens, mm-hmm. and he's pretty sure that he's the, not the gonna world li- one. World War Two, yeah, 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 yeah. He's pretty sure that he's just not going to live through it. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes later in the book, but like, there's at multiple points he is faced with the with whether or not he is going to have to kind of figure his stuff out. Or if just the war will take care of it for him, Mm -hmm. which is a very big, dark feeling that crops up in this book. Mm -hmm. So would Um, you you say that he has an appetite for destruction? 
You know, I wonder how he would feel. Is Paradise City on that track? Would he yeah. like to go down to Paradise? He would not like to go down to Paradise City where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. He would not mm-hmm. enjoy himself there. What if he what if he went to the jungle and somebody welcomed him there to the jungle? He might. Where they play fun and games? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he would probably enjoy that. He does like That's fun good. and games. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's a game that they play. So he goes to. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that this served as an actual springboard instead of just being like a conversational emergency break that brings the entire <laughs> podcast to a screeching halt. <laughs> he goes to uh, a boarding school at one point and he's not actually like staying there. He's one of the few like day students who goes there mm-hmm. and he becomes a, his like first major crush attraction is this boy Omi who is kind of like the bad boy like kind of like kind of like Sean from Boy Meets World maybe like, like Sean a, from Boy Meets would be cool a rough guy. around the edges guy but probably not like a, Sean like a, because, a, a real Roger Klotz uh more likable than Roger Klotz but probably not as good of heart as Sean from Boy Meets World okay uh, somewhere in between, on that spectrum, the Sean to Roger Klotz spectrum. Um, and the boys all play this game that they call Dirty, mm-hmm. uh, which it, it's sort of like, uh, this happened in my high school, uh, you boys enjoyed just hitting each other in the crotch. It's just a thing yeah. that you would do as like a surprise not a cool thing to do in retrospect at all yeah yeah you just like tap somebody yeah it's like with a quick just a quick (laughs) a quick light but effective punch not yeah the looking back bad don't ever do it uh it it. did happen though and Mm -hmm. these boys play a game called dirty that is not a tap but it's just a grab yeah, that has a different flavor to it, doesn't it? Yeah, and then the game is that you yell like, hey, that was dirty, and then everyone else goes, yeah, that was dirty, and then like the game proceeds. It's very strange. Wow. Um, I know. Okay, sure. But it it is a moment of awakening for uh, our narrator who then has to like consider Omi in like, and his actual like physical existence. He doesn't mm-hmm. actually play dirty with Homie, but it is it is a thing that he's like, oh now, oh yeah, that's a person, and I have mm-hmm. feelings about that. Mm-hmm. Um, they do wind up having that moment I alluded to earlier, where they hold hands, falling off a balance beam, and it's like the closest he gets to having some sort of like physical connection with this guy. But he also. <sighs> He finds him attractive, Andrew, but it builds to this scene where Omi is like shirtless doing pull-ups in gym class, Mm -hmm. and he, instead of being like, God, that guy's so hot, he's like, God, that guy's so masculine, Mm -hmm. I would like to, I would like to be that masculine. I'm upset that I am not, I am jealous of this person, and I'm jealous that I cannot be this person. Yeah, 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 and that that has ties in with some of the the biographical stuff that we talked about the the top of the show with his his later in life interest in physical fitness and and weightlifting and 
Yeah. Yeah. And when he does finally have a moment where he engages in what throughout the book he refers to as his bad habit, Andrew. What is the bad habit? It's a thing that he does alone with himself, to use another euphemism from the book, with his toy. Okay. Those euphemisms don't persist throughout the entire book, but that's how they're introduced. I I don't think we need to talk about it anymore. Yep. Um, (laughs) And when he finally is like, I don't know. This book is, yeah, this book is kind of graphic. He's on the beach thinking about... It's a graphic novel. How lonely Omi seems to be as a person mm-hmm. and like that is what and gets him excited and also what gets him ex- excited is like thinking about w- himself in whatever traits he might share with Omi yeah he's he's uh the narrator interesting guy mm-hmm. um he, yeah um, so with, like what do we what do we do we know anything about the narrator other than that he just like exists as a as a level of remove from like the, the characters in the book or is it like, yeah, tell me what you know about the narrator. Well, he, I mean, he maps pretty cleanly to Mishima's autobiography. Like, but is he supposed to be the same character or is he supposed to be Mishima? I, or is, I mean, it's a, it doesn't need to be a one-to-one thing. Like it doesn't, it, it can just be, He's a guy. He's a, a guy. disembodied perspective that, okay, sure. Well, no, I mean, he the the person, the story you are getting is someone writing this book to you, the reader. It is not. But, it, but is, it, is it always just like somebody communicating in the third person what is happening? Or does the narrator ever turn to you and be like, reader, oh, I married him? It's all first person. It's reader, okay. I was born, see in the future. It's reader, I was on the beach and got into my bad habit it's reader i uh don't i i my sexual awakening was this painting of a christian martyr uh reader the second half of the book is going to be about how i tried to fall in love with this girl so that like maybe i could move on from some of this stuff so or the like, narrator it, is the character yeah grown up okay yes. all, right, all right sorry if i made that unclear but it yeah no it's just yeah okay it it is the um the way that the book feels is that you are often pretty close to the you feel close to the age of the character but the narrator narrating his life is like telling you things that point towards where he is like emotionally at the end of the book or maybe okay. after the book all right yeah it's just the the way that you said that the the narrator was a machima stand in it just you you mean oh. He's a Mishima stand-in in the, in the sense that, that the character, the is, character a is a Mishima. Okay, yes. all right. Sorry about yeah. that. That, that. That was where I was confused. Okay. Cool. Um, and so before he embarks on the second half of the novel, he's like kind of rounds out this Omi chapter. Omi just gets transferred out of school. He gets kicked out of school for being a, you know, a Roger Klotz, I guess. It's uh, <laughs> really um, cool guitarist start playing anytime he walks into a room. <laughs> Because he's such a bad boy. Uh, and he spends like a few pages like recognizing how he is different from the other boys his age and kind of unable to relate to them. Um, there's this beat where like one of their classmates has passed away and he the the main character went to the funeral and is meeting up with this other friend afterwards 
and he's like, yeah, I saw so-and-so's mom at the funeral. She said that, you know, it would be really nice if you came by uh, to console her because she's so lonely. And he means what he's saying, but his, like, you know, teenage, you know, guy friend is like, oh, what a dirty thing to say that I should go over there. <laughs> oh. And he kind of has to grapple. That That is an example of him being like, oh, I don't, I don't see the world the same way and that that is preventing me from relating to people it is causing me stress as i move through the world um when you mentioned that there is like what he does and doesn't have access to in terms of like understanding what is going on and he doesn't connect with other gay folks in the book he does read stuff by this guy, Magnus Hirschfeld, I think, who's a real mm-hmm. guy, mm-hmm. Um, German guy from the late 19th, early 20th, uh, who published Century. a bunch. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> <a> year. <laughs> um, and he wrote a lot about um, you know, gay and transgender rights and stuff, and all, all of his stuff was targeted by the Nazis. Um and there's some language in this translation that I don't know that anybody would use today about like what is referred to as sexual inversion, which is as it is described in the book, um, like experiencing the sexual attraction of the other gender mm-hmm. um, in a in a gender binary system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's if you're reading this book and you and you hit spots of like invert or inversion, like that's what he's talking. So he has a schema for what he's going through, but he doesn't ever have an actual conversation with another human about it. Sure. Um, and so you're only getting it through his his own head. Uh, and then, yeah, like I said, the last half of the book is him. It's a, it's the year before the end of the war. He's going to law school because his dad told him to. And the war is happening. There are regular air raids. And there's this sense that Japan might just end. Like, people don't know if they want to continue the war. They don't know what the future holds after the war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he has been conscripted by the government. Uh, he's working at a factory building, you know, kamikaze planes. And he... this The thing you said earlier andrew where um mishima was drafted and then like got out by talking about his health problems uh that does happen i didn't get that it was so much a getting out of it so much as it was the the people who were evaluating him oh yes yes yeah no i i, I don't think it was meant to be a like a draft dodging situation for him i think it was that he he wanted to go and the authorities judged him not worthy of going i just that might not be how it happens in the book but that's the impression yeah. that i got from the reading i did on him it's a little more nuanced in the book in the sense that he does have a cold when he goes and because they they see his symptoms and then look through his medical history and he doesn't like try to like dismiss their concerns they you know they toss him out okay okay and the character is really confused by his own like letting that happen because up until this point he's been thinking like well maybe the war will just i'll just die in the war and then i won't have to worry about my problems and i won't have to worry about the fact that i can't relate to anyone Mm -hmm. um and 
that so that's like a critical i think there's like an anxiety about going on like just living your life and figuring out what comes next Mm -hmm. that is why he you know stays closeted throughout the book it is there's a metaphorical resonance with like what is japan gonna be after world war ii i guess though Mm -hmm. the narrator's voice is not super concerned he's not like overtly concerned about that it's just happening in the background yeah um and then there's this whole relationship with this woman named sonoko who is the sister of a friend he makes in law school who then enlists in the war and is on the front. And he's like, Hey, just like look out for my family while I'm at the front, like hold on, you know, hang out. And the, the two of them have a meet cute, like on a train, actually. Mm-hmm. That's a good place to have a meet cute. Uh, talking about books on the way, the family is on the way to, to visit Kasano when he's like back, you know, on a short leave from the front or something. And they strike up a kind of platonic relationship. Obviously, she does not know that it is going to stay platonic. And he does attempt to not have it stay that way. He really struggles with the fact that he's not attracted to her physically. Um, after there's like a, his first kiss is like a distant cousin that shows up. That seems bizarre. Uh, mm-hmm. But he does kiss her. And there's this really interesting scene where, like, he feels nothing. And if she hadn't immediately, like, kind of turned away in a, ooh, I can't believe we just did that look, she would have seen on his face that it did nothing for him. And, like, if only that had happened, maybe their relationship would have been completely different. Mm-hmm. That's Those, like, little moments of a, a, a bit, because physical connection is so sparing in this book... Um, between actual characters, not just his like visions of like mutilating people in torture dungeons, which is a, another big part of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the moments where it does happen are really, really powerful. Um, and it builds to her and her entire family, like wondering when he's going to propose. Um, and he just kind of gives a soft no to her brother because he doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't know how to explain himself to anyone. And so he just gives the like, I don't know, I guess I'm just not ready yet. And then completely like breaks off ties with them. Mm-hmm. And then she gets married after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the book, they jump two years and the book ends with this like, him reconnecting with her they spend some time together he takes her to a club and they dance for a bit and he's like maybe he's like finally feeling something for her and then he sees like a a hot younger guy across the club and like has another vision of like disemboweling him in the street and being very into it and then kind of realizes that he is like split between this like soul longing for her and this Mm -hmm. physical attraction to men and and sadism and things that he will just never reconcile yeah um it's just like i guess the because you 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 bring up this when we were talking about his attraction to men we're also talking about this like attraction to like pain or sadism or, or whatever yeah and my it just keeps hitting this part of my brain that's 
that is identifying it as a as a trope of like associating homosexuality with other behaviors that are seen as as deviant as a way to like vilify it or mm, to mm-hmm. to make it seem like even like to seem quote worse or more unnatural you know yeah and i don't i don't i don't have any follow up points it just like every t- every time you mention that i that's that's where my brain goes yeah and i am not like personally comfortable with how often this character you know and i I know that this is it's it's an experience that he had clearly um Mm -hmm. about like thinking about it as sinful or thinking about it as morally wrong and that is a thing that the character is working through but i don't the the book that we have here that i read i was i came away really unsure of how this character felt about himself at the like mm-hmm. it was it felt like it was meant to be tragic that he neither got to he didn't get to like reconcile himself with himself like by taking off you know he talks about the mask is the version of himself that he presents to the world it's not mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um and he never gets to take that off which is i think presented as tragedy um but yeah, the the what it, he's so extreme of a personality that yeah, it does it it probably pings some tropes for folks reading it. Uh, sure. Uh, and and you know I, it's just like I I've read the uh, 1958 New York Times review, which is very short, mm-hmm. uh, and praises like the style what does it say this book will increase american awareness of his skill but it will also i imagine arouse in many readers word choice arouse in many readers as much (laughs) as much distaste as respect and it doesn't really unpack that like thesis statement i mean it's like might as well end the review with no homo if you're just gonna write that you know (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In Confessions of a Mask, a literary artist of delicate sensibility and startling candor. Those two, I would say, delicate sensibility and startling candor are accurate, has chosen to write for the few rather than the many. Okay. He wrote a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Let me me just read this passage that kind of gets to this thing that I just talked about with Sonico. Okay. It was difficult for inversion to become an actuality in my case simply because in me the impulse went no further than sexuality, went no further than being a dark impulse crying out in vain, struggling helplessly, blindly. Even the excitement aroused in me by an attractive ephebe, which is a teenage or younger guy, like anywhere in this book it's 14 to 21, I don't know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, stopped short at mere sexual desire. To give a superficial explanation, my soul still belonged to Sonico. Although it does not mean that I accept the concept outright, I can conveniently use the medieval diagram of the struggle between the soul and body to make my meaning clear. In me, there was a cleavage, pure and simple, between spirit and flesh. To me, Sonico appeared the incarnation of my love of normality itself, my love of the thing of things of the spirit, my love of everlasting things. But such a simple explanation does not dispose of the problem. Um, and yeah, this book is overall about his inability to reconcile various parts of himself sure Um, for sure he even talks early in the book andrew about um he's like he's has a lot of uh like western authors that he references Mm -hmm. and he is a he fashions himself an intellectual and he like 
decides early on that he's not going to be attracted to intellectuals because he like doesn't he doesn't like himself so he doesn't want to like that in other people i mean listen people have done (laughs) people have made worse decisions in the interest of like protecting themselves from bad relationships yeah i suppose it's just (laughs) the there the character has a lot of contradictions um and i think that probably speaks to people reading this book sure Um, sure sure. so i the only other and i don't know if you had other stuff you wanted to hit before we like as we wrap up the only other question like broadly generally that i wanted to ask is what the translation was like like i i know a lot of the time when we read translation or translated works there are moments where it is clear that it's a translation in some way and i just wondered if there was anything you wanted to to talk about on that front i don't know i think to me like if not we can we can cut this out or you can be about to make like a really cool stunning point we keep it whoa nice of you to it's up to you presume that that was possible Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. the the book is lighter on dialogue than it is on the narrator protagonist's kind of internal monologue. Sure. The internal monologue has a flowery quality, not quite academic, but certainly like read a lot of books, thinks in the way that these kind of uh, turn of the 20th century writers write way of constructing thoughts maybe is trying to emulate them on purpose Mm -hmm. that all feels pretty purposeful and consistent sometimes uh particularly in the chapters at the school with omi and and the boys like whenever you would get a little dialogue it felt maybe just a little underwritten or that it was maybe maybe to my reader reading ears like i don't know under translated or or it was like not conveying the fullness of of maybe what it was would have conveyed in Japanese. I don't know. Um, but the, the intentionality of the florid quality, I, I hope that is actually capturing what the book does in Japanese. It seems mm-hmm. so consistent that it probably has to. Okay. Um, but I, I, there was, I can't speak to anything else in that, in that regard. Okay. Um, yeah, let me just hold on. What is this other? This other passage. Let me one more passage. I'll just share you, with you. take me through this passage. This is uh, kind of at the end of his school days. At the end of those that point I referenced earlier, where he realizes, you know, he just like can't relate to how other boys think, um, and he is realizing he is going to grow up and he's not sure what that will look like or what that will be. Um, On this occasion, I was too exhausted to ask myself the question I had asked so many thousands of times before. Why is it wrong for me to stay just the way I am now? I was fed up with myself and for all my chastity was ruining my body. I had thought that with earnestness, uh, I too could escape from my childish state childish state it was as though i had not yet realized that what i was now disgusted with was my true self was clearly part of my true life it it was as though i believed instead that these had been years of dreaming from which i would now turn to real life i was feeling the urge to begin living to begin living my true life even if it was 
to be pure masquerade and not my life at all. Still the time had come when I must make a start, must drag my heavy feet forward. Like, that's just a, a decent passage about growing up. Yeah. That has some specific context in this book, but like you could snippet that out and feel a way about it. And mm-hmm. a passage that when you're, you just kind of stumble through a book and you're like, oh, that's a thing that speaks to me regardless of what it says in this character's voice, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Those words mean a thing that is mm-hmm. kind of powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think there's a lot of that in this book so yeah complicated yeah. guy complicated guy and like we, when, uh, another thing we talked about you know off mic when we started recording is like this is a an archetypal separating art from artists discussion yeah. where we don't have as much context as we we normally do but it, like it does sound like this work can like can mean something for or resonate with a lot of people like despite you know, whatever you think of, 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 um, Mishima's political leanings or, or activities or, you know, coup attempts. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's the book. Thanks for helping me take off my mask, Andrew. Of course. I always, I mean, if you wear that mask too long, you're just going to become the, the mask. That's what this book's about. And I would hate for you to, to always have to, be smoking oh my god we gotta get out of here send us an email about your favorite scene from the mask uh overdue pod at (laughs) or son of or son of mask oh no direct to video okay only send us emails about son of mask overdue pod at gmail.com if you've watched son of mask i want to hear from you (laughs) uh hit us up on facebook and twitter at Overdue Pod. Thanks to Ingrid, Marcy, Carolyn, Ben, Vorbus, Nick, Pat, Sonia, Samara, Nathaniel, and many more for reaching out in the past week. Our theme song is composed by Nick Larangis. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and the ones we are going to read. Uh, click those links, buy the books. Your local independent bookseller gets a cut. We get a cut, you get a book. If you want to support us more directly, patreon.com slash overdue pod is the URL. You can get bonus episodes early. You can join our discord server and just have like generally very lovely conversations about all manner of things. Yeah. Um, and you can also get access to our bonus episode recording streams where we stream live with some folks and just kind of hang out and have a good time. Uh, you can get early access to our Goosebumps long read mm. project where we read notable books from R.L. Stein's Goosebumps series. Maybe you've heard of it. And, and you know, much, much more. Patreon.com slash pod again is that URL. Next week, I will be reading Every Heart a Doorway by Seanan McGuire. If you've ever wondered whether the kids from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe needed therapy after they came back to the <laughs> real world. That's what this book is about. (laughs) Awesome. Can't wait to hear about it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next week, please try to be happy.
That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>